Well, good morning, guys. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be back with you guys again. Um, I've got, a, I think, a, another word, for the Lord for you, word from the Lord for you guys today. Um, you know, setting an example is important. Would you all agree with that? Amen? There have been times in my life where the example has been that other people have, have set it, such an example for me, it sort of raised the bar for me to live by. You know what I mean? Anybody else experience that in their life? And it's, it sort of forced me to evaluate the way that I live. It forced me to evaluate the things that I do. Sometimes, listen, I, I, my wife does a great job of that. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> she says I'm not. <laughs> she says that's on purpose. Yeah. Um, I, I got to thinking about setting an example, and I started doing some research on it this week. And I come across this story, Charles Swindle, in his book, Living Above the Level of Mediocrity. He writes this following story. When I was a small boy, I attended church every Sunday at a big Gothic Presbyterian bastion in Chicago. The preaching was powerful, and the music was great. But for me, the most awesome moment in the morning service was the offertory. Wow. When 12 solemn frock-coated ushers marched in lockstep down the main aisle to receive the brass plates for collecting the offering. These men, so serious about their business of serving the Lord in this magnificent house of worship, were the business and professional leaders of Chicago. And one of the 12 ushers was a man named Frank Loesch. He was not a very imposing-looking man. But in Chicago, he was a living legend. For he was a man who stood up to Al Capone. In the Prohibition years, Capone's rule was absolute. The local and state police and even the Federal Bureau of Investigation were afraid to oppose him. But single-handedly, Frank Loge, as a Christian layman, and without any government support, organized the Crime Commission, a group of citizens who, determined to, who were determined to take Mr. Capone to court and put him away. Now, during the months that the Crime Commission met, Frank Loesch's life was in constant danger. Constant danger. There were threats on his lives, of his family, his friends, but he never wavered. Ultimately, we know history, he won the case. Won the case against Capone and the instrument for removing this blight from the city of Chicago. Frank Loesch risked his life to live out his faith. And each Sunday, at this point of the service, my father, a Chicago businessman himself, he never failed to kind of poke me. Like, hey, there he is again. I'd point at him with pride. Sometimes I'd catch a tear in my father's eye for my dad and for all of us. This was, this was and is what authentic living is all about. You see, this man had done something by standing up to Al Capone that, that, that made it so they could not ignore him anymore. 
He lived authentically, and living authentically is setting an example. You're setting a precedent. This morning, we're going to be looking at a story in Scripture about a man who set an example and examines a little bit what that looks like in our life. So if you have your Bibles, I'd ask uh, you turn to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 10. When he had completed all of his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it is he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. For I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. And he turned and he said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, I thank you, Lord, for your word. God, I thank you that your word is always so relevant and it's always still speaking life into us today. God, now as we spend this time, Lord, God, I pray that we always remember to keep you on the throne, Lord, as we look at your word. And God, we it's life-changing, life-breathing word, God. Father, I pray that we would let it breathe into us. God, I pray that we, we'd let it examine us. And Lord, if there's anything inside of us that doesn't look like the way that you would want it to look, God, you would, Lord, we would, we would make the decision to change. And God, I know you're so good and you're so gracious and you would just accept us right where we are no matter what that looks like. And Father, you'd help us, be, you'd help us change. And Lord, I pray that you would hide me behind your cross now. Fill me with your spirit. Empty me of myself. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Now this morning, I'm going to ask, please keep your Bibles open as we go through the scripture. You guys, have, I think you've kind of got used to my preaching at this point a little bit. We're just going to step back through this a little bit and, and, and kind of dissect and Look at what we're, at what God's saying here. Um, 
verse 1, we see Jesus, he, he just got done preaching something they call Sermon on the Plain. It looks very similar to the, to the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, but it's not. Sermon on the Mount has like nine Beatitudes. Sermon on the Plain has four. Okay, there, and, it, and, and really the Sermon on the Plain, it, it's, it is reaching more towards the Gentiles, the, the Gentile audience than, than the Sermon on the Mount was. The Sermon on the Mount was specific to the Jewish audience. Now, the Sermon on the Plain and much of Luke's gospel is written to the Jews, and the Sermon on the Mount is, again, it's written to the... It's, ah, the Sermon on the Plain and much of Luke's gospel is written to the Gentiles, and the Sermon on the Mount is, is written to the Jews. And, and again, you can read those differences if you want. Um, we're not going to go through them all. But Jesus had just got done telling these people how to live if they're going to follow him. And that's important to know before we get, like he just got done with his discourse. Well, what discourse are we talking about, you know? So it, it, because, listen, make no mistake, the Bible is a continuous story, okay? We're talking 66 books, three continents, written over a period of around 6,000 years, and it's all still a continuous story. That's the most incredible thing about the Bible. So when I want to go back and tell you, there's a reason I tell you, I'm just kind of going back just a little bit, and, and this is where we're at in Scripture right now. Now, up to this point, in Luke's gospel, everything that, that Jesus had been dealing with was, was the Jews. And we're about to see something different. It happens in, in Mark in chapter 8. It's a, it just... There, every single time we begin to see that the gospel is for everybody. Amen. Who's the gospel for? Everybody. Amen. All right. Verse 1, as we read, when we, we see Jesus, again, he's completed his discourse. Jesus moved to Capernaum because uh, he's Capernaum. There's a lot of scholars that, that call Capernaum his home base. Capernaum, uh, Capernaum he... He moved there after he was rejected at Nazareth. If you guys recall the, the story in Nazareth, when he opens the scroll and he begins to read the scroll and he says, this prophecy has been fulfilled today. And they looked at him and they said, blasphemy. They're, chasing, they're basically running him out of his own town. So he moved, he, he had moved to Capernaum. So he had returned to Capernaum, which interestingly enough, Capernaum's still there, by the way. Um, and this uh, synagogue we read about a little bit later is still there too. They, you can go there today and actually visit the synagogue. They found it. Uh, archaeologists have found it. Now I want you to watch. We read verses 2 through 3. And I, and, and I, I love the way that the NASB translates this because it does it rightly. Um, verses 2 and 3 and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. Now, listen, make no mistake, this guy was a slave. There's a, I've read some other translations that translate this as servant. He was not a servant. He was a slave. Servant would almost indicate that he was hired. Nope, he was not. The Greek word there, the, the Greek word literally means slave. And if you guys recall, a, a few weeks ago, I, I preached about Slavery in the Roman Empire, it, listen, this was a very normal thing. 
slavery was completely normal. It's, it's, how, the, it's how their economy worked. Their economy, their empire would have failed without slavery. I mean, what do we know about the centurion? I mean, we have the centurion here. We don't know the man's name. He remains unnamed in the story. However, there's a very close account to the, to the same thing in, in the book of Acts. A guy named Cornelius. You can read about it in Acts chapter 10 later on. But what we do know is this. He's rich. He's powerful. Most scholars would say that he was, he was held over at least 80 to 100 people. There's some that would go so far as to say that he could possibly have been over at least 1,000 people. He would have been... He would have been the boss. He would have been the man over at least at least 100 people, soldiers underneath him. He was in charge. What he said, people just went and done it. We know he's not a Jew. He's an occupier. He's taken over this land. A big part of his job was to even make sure that Jews that had not conformed to the Roman way, they stayed under control. So I want you to get this. This is an unlikely story of what we're about to read next. You know, the slavery, this guy was a slave, him. I found this information. The Greek philosopher Aristotle said there could be no friendship and no justice towards inanimate things, not even towards a horse or an ox or a slave, because a master and a slave are considered to have nothing in common. A slave, he said, is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. This was their mindset. A Roman law expert Gaius wrote that it was universally accepted that the master possessed the power of life and death over his slave. Another Roman law <clears throat> writer, Varro, maintained that the only difference between a slave and a beast and a cart was that the slave talked. If you guys haven't figured this out yet, I'm trying to get you, really get your, in your mind. This centurion was not like other Romans. He was not the same. Scripture says a satyrian slave who was highly regarded. He, this, he, this, this guy, he deeply cared about his slave. He might have been his slave. Like that, was, that was normal to them. That was their culture. But he cared. He had compassion for this guy. Deep compassion. And the Jews come to Jesus and they begin telling him all about the reasons why Jesus should be impressed with this guy. Verses 4 or 5, they, they say, when, when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, he is worthy for you to grant, grant this to him, for he loves our nations. He even built our synagogue. Now, listen, you know, some scholars would, would go on to say that there's a really good chance that this guy, maybe he had sort of, 
drifted towards, um, felt drawn to the Jewish, the Jewish religion. Because if you don't know, the Romans, they worshipped a lot of different gods. And so maybe he had a respect for them. Maybe he's seen their high morals. But he, it went so far, though, that he, he spent his own money and built their synagogue. But the Jews come to Jesus and are like, let me tell you all the reasons you should be impressed with this guy. Would you look how righteous of a guy this is? He loves the nation of Israel. He spent his money. He even built us a church. And isn't it funny? I'll just be honest with you. Sometimes we look at people the exact same way today. Let me tell you how good of a guy this old boy I know is. Let me tell you. Man, he takes his money, he gives it to kids, and, and uh, he, he, he'd fight for all the right reasons and do everything else. But can I tell you all something this morning? And this might sound harsh. All those things, there's nothing inherently wrong with them. But if they're not of Jesus, that does not make them righteous. God can still use them. Amen? There's a lot of people out there that think, man, as long as I do good, that's good enough. Sometimes, sometimes I think we feel like we can just go to people's funeral and pray them in heaven. We can't do that. We get to verse 6, and it doesn't say what Jesus' reaction is. We just see that we don't get any other words. All we get is this turn of events, and Jesus just, he's on his way to his house. Jesus started on his way with him, and he wasn't even that far from the house now. I want you to, to, to kind of picture this for a minute. This centurion soldier, he's heard about Jesus, right? Now, now, first of all, this guy had to have heard about Jesus, which is, I mean, listen, I could preach for like 20 minutes on that. I'm not going to. You're welcome. All right? He heard about Jesus. Praise God. So he must have heard that this guy healed people. He must have heard that he was not like everybody else. So he sent, like, hey, Jesus, may, Jesus can do something because he was already rich. This guy could afford the best medicine. He could have probably afforded the best doctors around, but he knew that none of those were saving his slave, right? None of them. And he goes and he sends some messengers out, which in that day, if you send messengers out to, to them, then it's the same thing as you. Okay, there was, it, it was, you could send someone in proxy, and that was a, a, considered the exact same thing. The book of Matthew tells this story, and it says that the centurion actually went to Jesus, but I've done, a, 
I've done a lot of research on this. It's way more likely that he sent other people. And Matthew records it as a Jewish, at, at, for the Jews, that it's way more likely that the centurion never actually went to see Jesus. He sent somebody. And so he sends somebody. And Jesus, Jesus Christ. I mean, we're talking like, how cool would it have been to live back then and knowing this guy was healing, uh, a healer, was coming to your house? I mean, this guy was obviously rich. He probably had a very nice home. He probably had plenty of food that he could have offered Jesus when he got there, plenty of drink, all the comforts. He could have shown off his big, luxurious home. He could have had all his slaves waiting for him, you know, well, come on in. Let me roll out the red carpet because Jesus is here. But what's he do? Hey, he gets his friends. Go stop the rabbi. Go, go stop him before he gets here. Run out there and stop him before he gets here and tell him, hey, don't trouble yourself with coming all the way to my house. I mean, I don't know. I just, that just kind of boggles my mind a little bit. You've requested someone's important presence. You've never seen them do what you're about to say, but Hey, stop him. You don't have to come all the way here. Now, most would tell you that he didn't do that because he stopped him because he felt like that maybe his house would have been unclean for him to step in. He's a Gentile. That's where uncleanliness come from. Gentile rules and rituals and customs and all those sorts of things. Then he says this thing, he says, if you would just say the word, my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority See, I've got soldiers under me. When I tell them to go, they go. And, and, and when I tell another one to come, he comes. And, my, and, and, and to my slave, I just tell him to do this, and he does it. And then when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He was blown away. I talked about last week, what, what's the thing that, that there's like two times in Scripture where you see Jesus marveled. He's either marveled because of your unfaith, and this week, I want to tell you, he can be marveled because of your faith. But last week, if you recall, his heart's broken. And Jesus is marveled. He says, listen, in all of Israel... Everywhere that I've been, I've never seen faith like this man has right here. See, that man understood something. He understood what authority was.
And the reality is most of us that are walking in here, if we are a born-again Christian, we have no idea of the kind of authority that lives inside of us. Because we don't understand the authority, we don't understand authority in, in, a, in a real way. This guy understood authority. He said, listen, when I tell people to do something, they do it. You've got authority. Not just over people, not over things, but over the creation of itself. He understood that Jesus was Lord. Like if Je- listen, if Jesus could t- look at the winds and the waves and tell them to, to, to hush, and that, oh, there's a whole other thing on that, where he, like literally, he didn't just tell the wind, the wind and waves to hush, he put a muzzle on it. Look up the Greek in that. It's real interesting. It's like it's his little red-headed stepchild. He just muzzled it. <laughs> I love you, brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not all redheads are bad, (laughs) y'all. Jesus can work on them too, right? Amen. Amen. He says, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. You know, earlier I listen. I give. I give some guys a hard time. Remember when I said, you know, they could do a lot of really good things, and it's not of the Lord. They're not of the Lord, right? But I think sometimes we let all of our tradition. We let all of our experiences, we let everything that we think that we know define exactly, define who God is and what he's capable of. God is so big. He's bigger than any box that we could ever put him in. He's more capable than any definition we could ever put, we could ever put words to. I mean, we use words because that's all we got. But we're talking about a God that can speak and mountains move. We're talking about a God that can speak and, and breathe life into things. Scripture would go so far as to say that he placed the stars in the sky. And that God cares about you. He's mindful of you. He loves you. I mean, you're his favorite. Of all the things that he created, we are his favorite. And this guy sets this precedent of faith.
He marveled at him. I mean, could you imagine surprising God? That'd be a hard task. And I want you to get this too. This guy come to Jesus because he was he had compassion for somebody else. And Jesus met his compassion with more compassion. You don't listen. It's so easy. this Christian walk to become a routine thing in our life and faith becomes something on our back burner. I mean, do we really believe in God? Do we really believe in the authority that he gives us? Do we really believe who he says we are? Do we really believe that, that we would, so, so much so that we'd go across the world Do we really believe that he would call me? Do we really have faith enough that we would set a precedent for people around us? I mean, do we really have faith? I mean, we have so much faith that we'd ask God to do outlandish things. I know what happens. I do, because I've experienced it. You be praying for something, and you get it, and you get it. Like, man, that's increasing my faith. And then suddenly you pray for something, and you don't get it. Or you pray for guidance, and you're not hearing anything. How about that one? You pray for a lost loved one, and, and, and they never seem to come to the Lord. They just keep getting farther and farther down in the hole. Which, by the way, most of that's all free will, guys. I'm sorry. Real love looks like free will. I can't explain any of those things to you. I really can't. Because he's God, he gets to do what he wants. Walking this Christian walk isn't always easy. But we have to rest in this idea that, man, God is good. been far too many times that I've seen God not answer prayers and later on down the line I understood why. We just don't see it at first. 
But in this case, Jesus met his compassion with compassion. And listen, where, where Jesus' compassion's at, his hand reaches out and touches. I don't know how else to, how else to explain it. Tom and his friends made it back to the house. That servant was already better. Slate was already better. I guess my question, I'll leave you with this. Where's your faith at this this week? Where's your faith been at last month, last year? This guy, this guy's outlandish faith. I can't imagine it not increasing somebody else's faith when they seen this slave get healed. And there's two things I want you to consider. If you stand with me, I want you to consider these two things. When it comes to your faith, I want you to ask God two things. God, How has my faith been for me eternally? Because listen, you've got to get this right. You've got to get your heart right, no matter what that looks like. But the other thing is, I'd ask you to say, what's it look like? God, how does my faith look to other people? Do other people see my faith? Do other see people see my faith in such a way, God, that it would increase their faith. Lord, what I ask these, these things that, of you that I've never even seen you do, but because I know the authority that you have, because I know who you are, I know how good you are, I know all these things, I'm going to ask them anyway. Would, do people see that faith in you? Do your kids see it? Does your spouse see it? Does your mom, does your dad see it? Do the people standing next to you see it? People at your job, your community. Do they see your faith? Would you be willing to set a precedent? And and if if you're struggling with that, it's okay. It's okay. Because there's this incredible place of healing. It's at the feet of Jesus. There's a place of restoration. It's right down here at the feet of Jesus. And I'm just going to invite you guys. Altars are open. Come as you feel it.